This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, president of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this third of three podcasts on the theme of activism, Barbara and David are joined by three guests. Blue Sanford, who is still only 18, but is already well-known as a founding youth member of Extinction Rebellion, a best-selling author and a literally underground protester against overdevelopment. Merlin Matthews, a lifelong activist and social entrepreneur whose reputation as Dr. Bike at the London School of Economics grew into a pioneering intersectional charity called Recycle. And Wendelin Bellinger, a seasoned Montessorian, academic lecturer, and now board member at Montessori Europe. Blue, for the sake of fighting climate change, you've been on school strike since the age of 15. Are you learning more outside than you might if you were still back at school? Uh, I think I am learning more than I would have. I think I'm, I'm more interested in what I'm learning, and it's going to be probably more useful for my life. Um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't plan to kind of leave secondary school. I, I went on a strike after my GCSEs, um, as a kind of another form of activism and exploring kind of Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future, um, and then just kind of really found that I was much, much happier and kind of more fulfilled, and I felt like I was really doing really important things, um, that I wouldn't have been able to do in school. And yeah, learning so much, um, and and not even not even kind of quantifiable things, just things like you know, different perspectives and meeting different people, um, and kind of how to communicate and stuff, which I think is also important to learn as young as possible. So, um, Blue, I understand that uh, your dad was an activist too. Could mm-hmm. tell us the story of what he was. Um, protesting about and and what was the outcome um so my dad's been an environmental activist for a long time since before i was born uh and in he has a farm in uh scotland on an island off the coast uh and when i was maybe nine or ten there was a salmon farm that was proposed uh just basically in our backyard um so he kind of was really like you know helping to run the campaign against the salmon farm which you know we had salmon for lunch (laughs) it's quite funny but um they're kind of very very destructive to the local environments and there's kind of lots of things coming out about like they um they kind of pump antibiotics into them and 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 dye them and all this stuff um so it's kind of, yeah, really bad how salmon's farmed. Um, and so this campaign went on for a few years. Eventually they've built the farm now, um, but it kind of got very intense, this campaign, and there were like, uh, the whole local community was against it. Um, but there was a lot of pressure from kind of the big business and the government um, and people who thought that it would provide jobs. Um which it didn't. Uh, and they were kind of sending threats to burn people's barns down. There were kind of a few scuffles on the ferry. Um, my dad's friend would kind of be spat every time she went to the shop. It was kind of really scary stuff. Um, yeah, so that was kind of my first introduction to activism. And how, how did you feel about what he was doing? Did you Was it important to you or you weren't, you know, being a child, you weren't really following him that closely? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, he kind of explained it to me. And I, I think I understood it. And I kind of agreed with it, of course, because, yeah, because of how I'd been raised. Um, but 
yeah, I didn't I didn't really understand why everyone I didn't understand that other people had different opinions about it because I just thought, well, of course, the environment's really important and everyone would want to protect it and kind of, you know, to 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 at least engage in a different narrative. Um, yeah, so I was I kind of and I think I was very sheltered from a lot of it because I was so young. Yeah. But your childhood in the Hebrides, um, which for everyone is an island to the west of Scotland, um, uh, this island that he had the farm on mm. was without cars and electricity mm -hmm. and hot water, if I understand. No hot water. Um, how did how did you think now, looking back, that sort of upbringing prepared you for life as a London-based activist? Um, I think it's. I think it prepared me really well for like. I really learnt that, you know, I I don't really need anything, any material objects to live. Um, I can kind of make do with with whatever I have. Um, and that's really important lesson is saying like I think a lot of people have learnt that on the stop HS two camps. Um, that you know it's 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 very difficult sometimes to live there, but you kind of come to an understanding of like okay, food, <laughs> food, shelter, water. You know those are the things that you need. Um, and you can have a really wonderful, fulfilling life without anything else. Yeah. And and did you feel that your childhood was fulfilling that way? Did you, I mean, you must have grown your own food and, <laughs> you know, used the local environment to um, sustain yourself and all that. So, mm. I think yeah. I, I had such a wonderful childhood. Yeah. I think, like, a really core, like, belief of mine is that people should be free. And I was like so free. We were all just running around like wild things. Yeah. <laughs> but do you sense that now you have a different attitude towards the natural environment because of your upbringing and where you grew up? Um, and does that energize your activism in, in the environmental sphere? Mm. I think a lot of people, um, because of living in cities, or whatever, just don't have access to the natural environment when they grow up. Um, so there's a real like gap in a lot of people's, I don't know, like kind of perspectives. People haven't ever been in wild places or had that connection to wild places, which I was so, so lucky to have. Um, yeah, so I think it's definitely informed a lot of my activism of like, I I can really imagine places like when I think about all this deforestation and, and places being destroyed, I think of my home and where I grew up. Um, and my childhood. Yeah. So what was your education like? So you said that you, um, there were schools on the mainland and then, but in the end you were sent to a London school. Um, but did you have any degree of homeschooling? Did your parents try to do a certain amount at home? Um, when, I think when my older sister was growing up, my, my parents kind of made all the decisions about where they were going to send us to school. Um, and they wanted, I think, I think that because the island Gometra is so isolated, there weren't any other kids. Um, so I think uh, my parents thought that we'd kind of be a bit isolated and, and they wanted us to have relationships with other kids. Um, and, and my mum lived in London at that time. So um, we kind of had to be, you know, around her. Um, yeah, so we went to school in London. So was that a shock to go from your free childhood to the world of <laughs> London, London schooling? Um, I don't really remember when we lived on Gometra the whole time because we started school in London, yeah, primary school. Um, yeah. I remember like we all, we'd kind of all cry when it was time to leave Gometra and like, you know, hold on to the, to the tractor and <laughs> we wouldn't get on the boat and stuff. Oh, so, uh, I I was born in Hawaii and mm. um and I never wore shoes until I was 5. Yeah. And um you know I just lived on the beach and we were in a very undeveloped part of um the north side of Oahu within view of Diamond Head and we and we just you know lived a free life like you say. Mm. I mean there were houses and things but it was mostly a seaside beach life. 
Mm. And I remember, I do remember when I first had shoes put on me and I just couldn't understand it. You know, what, what is this? Why? Yeah, I had exactly you, that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to my feet? You know? mm. I guess it was like shoeing a horse or something. <laughs> so um, what was the turning point, do you reckon, in your, in your youth? Because you did, you know, you went to school, you went to um, very liberal, open sort of format schools. But what was was some turning point that you knew that you were going to head towards activism as a vocation? Um, I think it was when when I was kind of fifteen, and I started getting involved in Extinction Rebellion. Um, and before that, I had, I kind of had this very clear mental understanding of the climate ecological emergency. And I thought like, okay, yeah, you know, this is the science. I've understood it. My dad's talked to me a lot about it. Um, but I didn't have a real connection of like, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is happening in my lifetime and um, people are dying right now because of all of these things. Um, until I started um, actually engaging with it in a kind of, you know, more than just from my dad. Yeah. And um, so now if you had to use a word to describe yourself, you know, um, what you do, it's like people say, what do you do? Would, <laughs> would the word activist be right? So someone, you know, the formal definition, someone who incites change to make the world a better place. Or do you see it as a vocation or a mission or a calling? I'm, I mean, most young people really struggle to find their calling. Mm. Um. I think I I really kind of dislike labels um, in in kind of all parts of my life. Um, so I kind of would never, I don't think I'd ever like say, you know, this is, you know, this is my life. I'm an activist. I'm going to be an activist for my whole life, whatever. Um, and I think that's really, it's not really re my relationship with kind of activism, direct action. Like I'm, I think I act because uh, I've, I feel like I have a moral obligation to, to do something for the people who are dying and the people who will die. Um, and it's not necessarily like, you know, this is my vocation, this is my career, this is what I'm doing, I'm, I'm helping other people. It's, it's what I feel like I have to do it yeah so it's it's a personal um ethical decision rather mm. than it's your job so to speak yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean um Barbara and Wendelin in front of you are both committed educators but you've um suspended your education for several years now in order to pursue this work because it's urgent mm. and it's you know can't wait and, mm. and like I think I read in one of your interviews you said well there's already lots of scientists and, you know, journalists or whatever. No one's listening to them. So, um, but what would you, what would you say to them? And what would, I'd be interested to know what Wendelin and Barbara would say back about the role of education in developing um, these sorts of worldviews and developing yourself as well. So what would you, what would you say to them about, <laughs> <laughs> about education? Um, I think that's, I think that kind of the way that school is done in in England, say, is, you know, it's, it's one very clear path of education that's not necessarily, like, it's, it's not holistic of, like, all of the different approaches that education can take. Um, and I don't think I have suspended my education at all. I think, you know, I'm still, I'm learning so much. Um, but I think that, like, the kind of, you know, primary school, secondary school, university, whatever, that like uh, way of education was really unhelpful for me, at least the way that it's done and the way that I experienced it. Um, and I didn't, you know, I would have learned a lot more, I think, uh, being taught differently, and, you know, experiencing different things. So Wendelin, what would you say? Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, and and I, I, so whilst I see myself as an educator, that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe education takes place in school only, in brackets. Mm -hmm. 
um, I, you know, I learn every day. I'm, I'm not in school, but I learn every single day and I'd be terribly upset if I didn't learn. I love mm. sitting here talking to you and to Merlin and learning about what you do. So I am learning. And, and like you say, you haven't suspended your education at all. Mm. You are learning every single day. Um, and I think it's as an educator and I was, um, I'm an early years educator. So I work with the, the little ones. I think it's my job to make sure that, that I instill this love mm. for lifelong learning in children rather than the facts of maths or, or anything else. Um, you know, it, it's my job to make sure. Merlin, I think um, in the previous episode you were talking about you've got to find what turns you on. <laughs> um, and I think that is the most important thing I can do mm. as an educator to make sure that you have or that the child has the space, the guts uh, and the strength to find what 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 makes them tick and and to continue pursuing that throughout their life and also and also actually to change tack if if they need to mm. um so that is i think my role as an educator so do you think that children should be able to leave school whenever it's not working for them <laughs> <laughs> that is a very very interesting question oh david i don't know i i i wish there was then I, I would hope, I'm going to answer this as a parent, not as an educator. I would hope that when, if my 14-year-old daughter came to me and said, this school isn't working out for me, I, we as parents, my husband and I, would then work with her to find what would work for her. And if that wasn't a school, that would be okay? I, th I think that's illegal in this country because <laughs> she has to be in school until she's 16. So we would have to find an environment that would that would work for her right right you can educate at home as long yes. as they're getting I some think education then we'd probably kill each other <laughs> 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 i don't think parent teachers should 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 teach their children that that would well certainly i shouldn't be in charge of teaching my child <laughs> i wouldn't want to do that to her barbara what's your view on this um I think that education has become an institution which represents the power of the people who are running the world. And so education is always focused onto some kind of a vision of, it's placed within context of a, a political agenda. And um, at the moment, education is very much in the service of the utilitarian in the service of the people who will produce something rather than in the service of the spirit of the human being. It very much leads us towards outcomes rather than looking at the process of learning. So I very much endorse everything that Wendelin has <laughs> said. Um, I think there is a big difference between education and learning. Learning takes place all the time. You learn from the moment you are born until the moment um, when you leave this world. Um, I must say that I have learned far more in the last three years since I have left my job than I have le learned in the 10 years before I left my job because I have new avenues have opened and I have been free to explore ideas which. I didn't think of before, for example, like participating in the podcast. I wouldn't have ever thought five years ago that we would be doing something like this, having conversations with other people who come from different walks of life, and yet we are to get drawn together by interest. There's a richness of learning, which sadly at the moment school doesn't often offer to children. So education is limited, um, I think it's important that children learn how to read and write and do basic mm. mathematics. Um, I think it is important that children are given time to be free to create in the way that they have naturally been gifted to create because all children have got the capacity to be creative, but how they take that path um, will be different from each child. But of course, that kind of education would require very different kind of educators. 
it would require a very different type of training of teachers and um, um, it would also require every teacher goes through the process of examining why they want to be teachers. Lots of people say, uh, when I interviewed prospective students, um, they would say, I want to share with children what I have learned. Very few people say, I would love to learn from the children. And I think learning is a process between the two. It is learning from each other, learning together, learning collectively. There is lots of richness in that. So I, I don't think I have fully answered your question, but that's how I feel about it at the moment. No, that's very helpful. And Merlin, do you would you have forgone university? Um, didn't sound like the management theory was that helpful. Um, and gone straight into into you know working to help people or would or do you you know in in retrospect was it helpful in some other way well it was through the university that i discovered the anti-road protesting and it was through the university that i became dr bike and fell into setting up the charity shipping bikes to africa so it was it was totally due to the university although not due to the academic Aspects not the, and studies. But not the course itself, but the, mm. the community, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, schools and colleges and universities, they are communities and um, they bring people together in a way that, you know, is a, a, around ideas and around thought and debate. So um, I guess even maybe they should have them schools and colleges and universities with no courses. Mm. Maybe they should have libraries and discussions and podcasts and that sort of thing the debating is interesting i mentioned um, john taylor gatto g-a-t-t-o before he studied in america where there are five schools that all of the presidents go to and and he was looking okay so what are they doing that's different and he said that debating is one of them which is free and the idea of sort of getting your opinion across and sort of conversing and persuading and horse riding, which is not free. Um, manners, which are free. Those are that I, I remember in particular. Ah, that's interesting. So, um, Blue, you wrote a book as a mm-hmm. founder member of Extinction Rebellion Youth called Challenge Everything, which is actually a really good motto for activism generally, <laughs> I think. Yeah, and, I um, didn't come up with the title. The publishers did. <laughs> <laughs> well, publishers do things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I've seen it, and it's a great summary of the XR vision for anyone, not just for a young audience. I think um, so. You know, brilliant work. And um, but it talks about. I remember um, these citizens' assemblies, for example, mm-hmm. and you know the way that brings people together for debating. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, Well, Citizens' Assembly is a kind of democratic process of um, collecting, say, 100 people who are representative of the society that they're from and and, uh, bringing in experts uh, to tell them about, uh, this is about climate change, um, but it could be about anything. Um, So experts, kind of scientists, to tell them about climate change and the risks, the effects, the causes, whatever. Um, And then uh, they kind of talk about it and they vote on kind of like solutions uh, and and decide what to do about these issues. Um, And they advise the the ideas that the politicians commit to being advised by the Citizens' Assembly. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it was kind of a key thing of Extinction Rebellion was they were calling for a citizen assembly uh, about climate change, climate ecological emergency, um, which I I was always a bit uh, kind of pessimistic about. I think I don't quite trust people to make... Um, I think I, I don't quite trust people to be able to understand the kind of length of the crisis in you know four weekends however long they're given to to talk about this huge issue um 
and and they did one. I'm I'm not quite sure when it was. I think it was maybe a few months ago, a year ago. Um, the UK government had a citizen assembly about climate change, um, and I think it did some good th things came out of it, some good decisions, but it kind of wasn't far enough. It didn't have the effect that it needed to have. So what if if you don't think, and I actually agree with you, you don't <laughs> think that sort of people off the street given a few weekends to learn something are going to necessarily come up with the right, mm. uh, the right position on things? Who should decide, do you think? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Big question. I mean, probably not the politicians because they're... <laughs> So often self-interested. I mean, not entirely, but, you know, it's yeah, certainly high it's... up on their list of priorities is to get reelected yeah. and do whatever that takes. So mm -hmm. um, so who should decide <laughs> if we can't rely upon the citizens who, I mean, well, we should to some extent, but. Yeah, if, and uh, I think the the kind of citizens, like they do do good things and, and kind of have their hearts in the right places, I think. Um I'd maybe, I mean, also I know very little about politics and um, all the theories of democracy and stuff. Um, so I'm no way an expert. But I think, you know, I think a citizen assembly could work if given more time and like more expert opinions, more perspectives. Um, I don't know, though. I'm not really. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. Uh, Merlin, are you familiar with that concept of the citizens assembly? Yes, I come across it. And the theory of democracy is sensible. My understanding is that the current execution is scant little democracy. And do you want sort of the blue people sort of pushing you around? Or do you want the red people pushing you around? Because we had uh, new Labour um, in charge for a while, and there was not a lot of perceptible change. And getting to vote once every four years on a whole bundle of things. And the classic the classic is that sort of the politicians, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do this, we'll do that. And then you look at it in like two years down the line and like cross, 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 no, no, no. And it's sort of how do you tell when a politician's lying, their lips move? And I'm not, that's a bit of pretty broad brush statement. Um, and then revolving doors is a, a thing where both here and in other, other places, politicians um, are in power for a while and then they get a job with big business and then they get back into politics and back into big business, hence the revolving doors. And the lack of clarity on sort of conflicts of interest um, and vested interests, it's a big topic. It really is. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. It's. I think politics has always been that way and... Um, you know, the idea of a representative democracy is, you know, is probably the best of all the ideas, I think. <laughs> uh, um, it's quite a good idea, but definitely you can't, you can't rely on what they promise. Um, they're more, more interested in saying the right thing, you know, than they are in, in seeing it through. I think part of the problem is just the short-termism, isn't it? You know, that they know that that problem, whatever that is, will not be, you know, they'll not have to deal with that during their tenure. So, you know, they're quite happy to 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 let it slide, really. Well, this um, ties into education because mm -hmm. if you think of a, of a child from sort of even, even just sort of, you know, the education from primary to sort of higher education, then the number of sort of political cycles that have gone on through that. And from a, from a young age, I thought, well, the politicians should just say, okay, we, we all, we're all going to live in this country in sort of 20, 30, 40 years, whatever. So let's sort of put aside our various bickerings and sort of just invest in education for the broader sense, for the benefit of the population. And we're supposed to be looking after people according to our oaths and what have you. Small rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I mean, Blue, I, I, I learned that when you were, 16 you were at a at a, a protest where you were arrested and processed by the police fingerprinted and dna'd i think mm -hmm. threatened to be strip searched and mm -hmm. put alone in a cell and experienced all those psychological pressures of having no control over what was happening to you which is horrendous 
did that experience give you change your perspective on activism, reinforce it, um, give you a, a, a you know a, a richer idea of the impact of what you were doing? Um, I think it made me. I think it's it maybe didn't change my opinion. It reinforced a lot of things for me. I think because it was kind of my first. Um, sorry, <laughs> I think I'd been very privileged before that in my life to have never come up against this kind of like the states or police or, um, you know, all this brutality. Um, and that was the first time that I'd really experienced that and, and the lack of freedom, like freedom's always been so important to me. Um, and to kind of not have any control in that situation was almost the worst thing. And like that, you know, the, the police, that arrest was kind of, they, they were quite, uh, abusive, um, and and like you know didn't give me water and turned off the the like help bell and it kept me illegally like for 26 hours um so that was all i kind of felt really the injustice of like being um you know not having any control and they'd done all this awful stuff they shouldn't have been able to do and i had kind of no way of, of getting back at them unless i wanted to sue them which was like a whole kind of huge ordeal that I also didn't want to go through um yeah and yeah and, and I was thinking of all the other people who were much more vulnerable than vulnerable than me in that yeah. situation and, and you I've actually, kind of chosen sorry you, you actually turned 17 while you were in your cell yeah <laughs> I remember you you kept saying what time is it and they kept saying how old are you and you yeah and, and it depended upon what time it was didn't it because it was actually your yeah. birthday overnight in, in, in the cell. Well, at least when you got out, you got some some birthday cake. So Yeah, I had a nice so cake. <laughs> um, is there anything you can tell us without revealing, uh, you know, anything important about the HS2 protest tunnel? Or just the experience of it? You don't have to tell us where it is and all that. But um, um, what's that, that like? That was of, of in Houston, do you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was um, a few months ago. Uh, we dug a tunnel in Euston Square Gardens um, in central London and occupied it. In Basically, they wanted to knock down the whole gardens to build a temporary taxi rank so that they could build HS2, an HS2 like kind of platform and station underneath the taxi rank. And then they were going to, get rid of the temporary taxi rank and build a kind of block of flats that they could then sell for loads and loads of money. So it's all, it's like land grabs, all of it. Um, and, and it's all the way down the HS2 line. They're doing the same thing. Um, yeah. So we occupied the park and dug a tunnel. Um, and then when they came to evict us, uh, I think nine of us got in the tunnel and, and occupied it. Wow. Um, and and I ended up being in it for a month. <laughs> a month in the tunnel. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's commitment. That's amazing. So yeah. when they, people brought in your food and water and, and you slept um, in there and everything. We had stores of food and water. Right. Basically, okay. when the bailiffs came in, they like blocked off the top of the tunnel and the whole park. So oh. we had no we had no contact or way of getting in and out. My my friend's mom, who's like nothing to do with activism, said that she came to bring us some like soup and 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 cookies or something because she was like, oh, you know, they must be hungry or whatever. And she went up to the bailiffs. She's like, can I just bring it in? And they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, would you like a cookie too? They yeah. <laughs> so in that context, who is your most important, I mean, I don't want to use a word of enemy, but sort of adversary. Who are you trying to, persuade or change or overcome is it the police themselves the politicians industry corporate um, world all the all the millions of people who couldn't care <laughs> less or climate skeptics kind of people on the other side of the argument so where do you you, you know where do you see the who would if you had to queue them up and deal with them one <laughs> at a time who would be who would you put first in the queue i think um uh, I don't know. I think 
<laughs> Let me think about this. I I really believe in kind of people power and and kind of individual responsibility. Um and and even if you know, even if we can't change anything, I think it's still important to try and and to do whatever you can. Um so I kind of approach it all f- from the perspective of, you know, I want to convince everyone around me and and you know normal people and then you know then we can change the system and convince you know all the people in power and the fossil fuel um owners whatever um yeah so i'd say just normal people yeah i think that's that's a good answer and and who do you see as sorry what do you see as the greatest victory so far in your activism i'm i know that there's that Fracking, for example, which is one of the things you have been working against, has been mm. suspended in the UK, if I understand it right. Yeah, we did. That was my first direct action was a, a fracking conference. Right. Uh-huh. Um, with a couple of other Extinction Rebellion youth people. Um, and the Natasha Engel, I think her name is, the, mm-hmm. the kind of czar of fracking. We spoke to her at that conference and then kind of, Two weeks later or something, she resigned because of uh, environmental activists. So we were all super chuffed. We were like, yep, yep. <laughs> you made <laughs> her resign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's kind of this huge fracking campaign before us. But we yeah. were like, we've done something. We've achieved something. I think, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was an important factor. Yeah. In your, in your thinking, <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah, the um, pa- and the passion of people about the issue, mm, you know, probably was certainly a factor in, in that sort of decision. Particularly, like, we were all so young and, and to be faced with, like, you know, kids. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it was very mm. powerful, <laughs> yeah. And um, sort of an open question for everyone, There's what's the role of kind of creativity cultural creativity in activism, um, poetry, art, music, drama, things like that. Um, I mean, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. They're both a form of self-expression, aren't they? You know, where the creative world is self-expression of the conventional creative world, but then so is activism. It's your expressing your, your concern and your, and your passion and your desire to help. Um, so, what do you think about, I mean, has, how have those things influenced you or how have you participated in those kinds of things? You know, Blue, you could start and then maybe <laughs> Merlin could comment as well. Um, I, think, I think art's kind of the most important facet of activism to me. And it's really what I'm trying to, um, what I'm trying to move into, I think, of like, you know, I think, I've been doing kind of direct action for years now and I've and I feel like like I want to be able to also do what I want to do which is art and and creating things and writing um and I think it has an amazing power for change art you know it's, it's conveying emotions um and there's so many good art protest groups and you know yeah yeah. And it's also, I think it's a personal passion of yours because, <laughs> you know, I know you want to, to, one of the things you want to do is to be a fiction writer. And um, interestingly, the genre you're, you you find most appealing is horror, um, <laughs> which I don't know if that derives from your <laughs> sense of the impending horrors of climate change or it's just a sort of general sort of goth kind of attitude. But um, I think so, that, so, that was a, a short story I wrote when I was kind of 13. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, so that was I more wouldn't of an, say that an, that's my main... <laughs> that's your main thing. So it's sort of an emo goth kind of um, goth way of, of looking at the world. But, um, I mean, still wanting to be a writer, how does that... How will... How can you see that complementing your activist vocation? Um, I think it's, it's one... Uh, and it, loads of really interesting things to write about, which I think people are always really interested in in kind of how I choose to live and, and what I'm doing because I think because it's not kind of how you'd expect 
the mainstream society way of living. Um, and I think it's, I, I think writing is about, you know, conveying your experience and your emotions and, and an outlet. Um, and I think it's really important to, to be able to do this outreach for other people, for them to read about it and understand it. Yeah, yeah. Merlin, do you have a view on the role of culture in the arts in, in social entrepreneuring and activism? One of the issues with activism is getting burned out due to the sort of state of alert and um, in some aspects of the non-violent direct action, the somewhat combative sort of adversarial way. So having a having a, a, a way to to be in touch with yourself and to express yourself and to that's that's one angle. I would like to mention a fantastic artist called Kate Evans and she has done graphic novels and such like um there's one magazine or zine funny weather we're having isn't it and she's also now she's a mum she's done a lot of good stuff on babies and um yeah she's a phenomenal and has written in the guardian and stuff i believe wow okay well that's what's a follow-up thank you and when, that's that's a way for for explaining to people um, what's going on and making it sort of accessible. Yeah, I remember there was an amazing graphic novel about um, the n sort of the risk of nuclear war um, that came out some time ago. It's probably I'm probably thinking of it as yesterday, but it was probably thirty years ago. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, that probably had more effect than any number of marches, I think, at the, at the time. Wendelin, do you have any any view on this? I mean, you're... Yes, you're, I... I um, look, art has always been a, a, a vehicle um, to convey social issues. Mm. Um, and, Blue, you were talking about how what is important to you is to make people... The, the normal people aware of the issues that we're facing. And I think art, uh, any medium, can, can be a real vehicle mm. in um, spreading your message. Um, as, as you say, David, I remember a, a book about the effects of nuclear war when I was at school, and I remember being really shocked by that. And that really spoke to me. And sometimes, you know, we might need pictures or we might need music, you know, the 70s with the music. I mean, normal people might need to hear the message through different media. And I think art is, is, a, is a real go-between between what you're doing and, and reaching people. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's a little bit of a challenge to think about. So when I was growing up, in the U.S., I lived in Washington, D.C. It was in the 60s. And as a child, I saw civil rights marchers led by Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And then when I was old enough, I went and participated in the anti-war rallies on the Mall. And when later at university age, attended radical feminist concerts. And my university in Santa Cruz in California in the mid-70s was so progressive that we had the world's first organic teaching farm our student canteens were vegan. This is 75. We took magic mushroom courses. We recycled everything. We were governed by the student-teacher collective. Our living quarters were mixed gender and commune style. One of my roommates was a transvestite. There were naked Fridays, no grades, no exams <laughs> at our university. It was all outlandishly counterculture. And then when I left, so it was now the end of the 70s, for the next 40 years, there was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. There was no activism. There was no alternative lifestyles, no interest in social change. And then suddenly, in the last few years, it's all taken off again. So is it just a repeat? Is this just, I mean, everything I experienced, it seems like, you know, 40 years later, everyone's acting like it's all new. Um, so is it just a repeat? It goes in cycles or is there something different this time? What, what do you think? Blue? 
Do you have a view on that? I mean, you weren't <laughs> there when I was, I was in the <laughs> 70s, so you don't know. But I'm just telling you everything that I've just said is true. So what, is that, <laughs> what does that sound like? I mean, I know your dad has been an environmental activist mm-hmm. for ages. Um, so he would probably recognize some of what I'm saying. But is it just yeah. a perennial thing or is it something really different this time? I think I've um I've I've talked to a lot of people kind of older people about you know all these cycles and and movements and a lot of people have said you know oh when I was younger I was an activist I did direct action um and I was kind of curious about why that stopped but I think it's it's that a lot of people um it's very hard sometimes to build community around all these things it's hard to build community anywhere um and i think that if you don't have a really strong community you kind of can't really last that long doing especially in like front lines activism which is really really difficult sometimes um and i think it's just you know you get burnt out and you and you have to go you you have to stop and do something else um and and i'm seeing it even a lot with with people, you know, with my generation and, and activists that I know of, you know, the last two years have been really difficult with COVID and um, all, all the kind of campaigns and stuff going on. Um, I think that maybe the the kind of immediacy of climate change might be, might kind of make it more lasting or impactful or whatever this time, because there's, uh, you know, with with kind of feminism and and civil rights, there wasn't that same kind of time pressure. Uh, yeah. But I don't know. I think our main issue was the was just a fear of war generally. Mm. So nuclear, you know, leading to nuclear war was the biggest fear, and mm. but it was a bit binary in in the sense it either happened or it didn't. Whereas yeah. climate change is sort of sneaking up on us in a way. <laughs> Merlin, what's your view on on the cycles of activism? I think I, Blue's right on the on people getting burned out. And I think there's often smaller activism um, happening in different places. I say smaller activism, I mean smaller campaigns with, with lesser numbers of people. And there are people in the Amazon who've been fighting for their indigenous land rights and people have been campaigning against sort of the Amazon being cut down um, for a long time, and people have been campaigning for Aboriginal rights, for Native American rights. There are a lot of different campaigns happening all over the world, um, down to sort of stopping nuclear power stations and, yeah, animal rights, live live exports. I'm just thinking of some things in Essex where I grew up. There, there have have been numerous and various different things, and that's just in a, in a little tiddly place on the east coast of the UK. And you think around the world, there there's a lot of different things. So maybe with sort of um, extinction, separate from ex- extinction rebellion, but sort of extinction and topsoils, and there are and, and and climate, there are things which are sort of overarching and bringing the sort of different populations together under a, a single campaign although there are there are lots and lots of different aspects yeah blue your dad said uh in something i read that um he felt like activism was running as hard as you can but always slipping backwards um <laughs> but but that this time he said there were real signs of change that he felt mm-hmm. it was different this time that you know, there's momentum, there's the millions of apathetic people are just agreeing and just saying, right, yeah, well, this is serious, we've mm. got to do something. And um, so are you quite optimistic, like your dad is? Are you <laughs> feeling positive? Um, I, um, I think a, a lot of my kind of impetus is is from kind of this depression that that I had when I was first, you know, learning about all this stuff and really engaging with it, um, of of kind of not not knowing what to do and and not feeling like I had any power and thinking about you know what my life was going to be at, in kind of 
twenty fifty when I'm forty and and there'll be serious water shortages um and and there'll be wars over water and food and um yeah, and I kind of couldn't really reconcile it with my life and right now um and yeah, and learning about all these people in in the amazon and and in South America, like all of these people dying uh and yeah. Why Why wasn't it being talked about? Why weren't people doing things? Um, so I, I kind of feel like, uh, I feel quite scared of all those questions of, of are you hopeful? Do you think change is being made? Because I feel like I just need to, you know, press forward and, uh, and do whatever I can. Um, and it almost doesn't come into it, whether it's, whether it will change things. Yeah, yeah, you just have to keep going. Mm. But I also think there's kind of huge, huge change has been made and is being made, and like the tide is shifting, definitely. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, my dad is very optimistic, and he he's been doing a lot recently with kind of um, he has this group called Catalyzers, which is kind of part of Extinction Rebellion. Um, and he's working very much with with people in power, people in government, and really talking to them. And, and getting such amazing results and such good engagement. Yeah. So there's definitely, there is optimism. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, like you say, it's a, it's a case of not, uh, not walking away, but finding new yeah. ways to keep the momentum going. And yeah. um, Barbara, how does this relate to the Montessori movement? Is there, is there, it's changed over, you know, now over a century. Is it, it's changed and it evolved and sort of subsides and then comes back. So what's your view, Barbara, on, on where the Montessori um, activism, so to speak, fits into these cycles? I believe that um, the Montessori movement has looked towards solutions, this has looked towards integrating climate issues, um, integrating sustainability agenda within uh, the work with young children by making making them aware of their power, of their capacity to change the world, and I think that is really really important that the children who are in nursery schools today don't feel such sense of depression when they become teenagers as Blue has felt. I think it's really important to empower the children of today to believe that they have got the capacity of the human species to be creative, to find solutions to world problems. And um, it is our responsibility as educators to give them the tools to the knowledge and understanding of the world today so that change could happen tomorrow. Okay, that seems like a good place to stop for now. Thanks again to Barbara Isaacs and David Getman and to our guests, Wendelin Bellinger, Blue Sanford and Merlin Matthews. Goodbye for now and keep listening. <laughs>